Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is a podcast from The Bugle. I'm Tiff Stevenson and welcome to Tiny Revolutions, the podcast where I take my favourite creators and talk to them about things that have been tiny revolutions in their lives, from politics to art to film to books. I'm very excited about today's guest because each guest I invite, they've been a tiny revolution to me personally. Please put your hands together. It is comedian and so much more, Rich Hall. Thank you. Hi, Rich. Hello. Hi. 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 Does it feel nice to hear that sound? The sound of two hands clapping. Yeah, I know that sound. Torpid. <laughs> Torpid mitting. That's what that's called. Torpid mitting. Torpid mitting. I've missed doing live shows. This is how I was first introduced to Rich. So I will give you a potted history before I ask Rich his first couple of questions because Rich is a person who so utterly with every fiber uh, of your being rich the funny is inherent so you do old rope which is my new new material night and you get up and you try stuff out there's never a moment where you think even if you're going down a path that you've been going down for five minutes and no you don't know sort of where it's going to go or what's going to happen there's just this knowledge that you will find funny anywhere there's never fear when I watch you on stage. I just know that I was like, where is this guy? I, I always know it's going to be funny. And um, you have a real fearlessness for that. And you're someone who has, in my career, advocated for me, helped me. You're so interested in other comedians and, and the process of comedy itself. I love that about you. Where did it all begin? Did Is this by accident or by design, how you've ended up becoming Rich Hall comedian, documentarian and... And everything else. The comedy part came as a um, possibly a happy accident. Now and then you see a hack comedian go on stage and go, I just broke up with my girlfriend. And I think, no, you didn't. <laughs> oh, you know, she she says I'm not attentive enough or whatever, something I don't remember. And I just think, get off the stage. You know, you can't take <laughs> emotional devastation and condense it to a flippant remark in a room full of strangers, you know, because if you broke up with your girlfriend, you should be a wreck. You know, you just should. <laughs> yeah. You'd be a wreck. And um, 
you got one joke out of it, and I can top that because I broke up with my girlfriend and got a career out of it. I, uh, <laughs> this has to go back to my first job, like before comedy, and um, I graduated from college and uh, at, at Western Carolina University, and I edited the student newspaper, and we just swanned around with this sense of, you know, self-entitlement and, you know, sticking it to the man, so to speak. That's, and that, <laughs> reductive parlance of the 70s, you know, sticking it to the man for, and I, I thought I was, well, anyway, I got a job at, um, after I graduated, I got a job for the a paper called the Knoxville, Tennessee News Sentinel, and um, so my girlfriend at the time, who lived in Charlotte, she was going off to grad school in Missouri, and I didn't really know, you know, what the future was going to hold or anything, and um I got a job at a newspaper in Tennessee, and they put me to work writing uh, what they call slot notices, which are obituaries, basically. Oh, that was my job. Okay, so I can see that now. I can see that in everything you do. Yeah, it was horrible. I thought I was going to be this. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, man, I'm gonna be like Woodward and Bernstein, and I'm writing obituaries <laughs> at night because all the people. Everybody would get information on a decedent, you know, and they'd go, uh, you know, Taswell, 76. That would be on a matchbook cover. And they'd throw that on my desk. And then someone would throw a, a cocktail napkin and said, Taswell, peacefully. And then somebody else would throw something on it and said, you know, Taswell, half-sister, Maureen, Tuscaloosa. And so I you're the, like a detective piecing yeah, I was together. Like the, yeah, I was like the magpie <laughs> of death. That's what I was. <laughs> Every night, like... And I had to do this at night when the place was empty. So my life was just full of dead people. It was horrible. It was horrible. And um, I couldn't get out of it. I went in and see the editor and I said, can I just start writing up some stories? And he went, yeah, but, you know, I'll look at them. But your job is to write, you know, slot notices. So I, I was trying to write stories and they were just getting filed under pending or dead. So... Uh, <laughs> So my live stories were dead and the dead people would come alive, you know, that was my life. And it was just f***ing weird. Like I couldn't sleep at night. I was, I'd walked all night around town in Knoxville. And then one day I was, uh, one day I saw, I, I was at the library and I, um, I heard this commotion out the window. It was like this crowd forming and I looked out and there was an evangelist, this campus evangelist named Jed Smock, who is still doing it to this day. And he had a loud hailer, and he was literally assailing the crowd. Like, he was going, I don't know why there's so many whorehouses in this town when you co-eds are giving it away for free. And, like, <laughs> but just playing the crowd like a conductor. Like, just riling them up. And they were going, go back to your cave and tell us more about the whorehouses. All this stuff, you know. And um, it was astounding. Like, I went up to talk to him afterwards because I, I was going to write up a story because I'd never seen anything like it, like, the crowd was so angry, but then there were also people like kind of listening to him. And that was the scary part because you know what you're like when you're 18 or 19, you see any tin horn doctrine that comes along, you know, when you're 18 or 19, Jesus, yeah. Carlos, <laughs> Castaneda, Bob Dylan, Khalil Gibran, all that shit, you know, you're susceptible. And I thought he was, I said, why are you, they're students. They're not, they haven't even done anything that, that, you know, is a, prelude to salvation yet they're kids get them while they're young yeah he's got a biblical he was like a spiritual grave robber is what he was and a <laughs> cradle robber and um i went back upstairs in the library and i just thought i don't know why i just thought what if 
that crowd had gotten together and he was doing this. And then all of a sudden he just flipped it and people just realized that it was a parody, that he was just sending them up. And I just thought, and everybody, this guy went, he told me he went to like 250 schools a year. So everybody knew him. Everybody on campus knew this guy. And um, I, uh, I quit. So I quit the newspaper and I became a, a fake evangelist, but like basically a street performer, yeah. Like, it was just like, if this doesn't work, I'll just grab my props and hightail it the f*** out of there and never come back. Like, I had nothing to lose. And um, basically, I started out just baptizing dogs. Like I would, <laughs> That's so funny. I just go to college campuses and get in the middle in the commons. And I start, <laughs> and of course, people start gathering because I just kind of like was dressed like Jed Smock. And then uh, and then I had this big picture of um, of the dogs playing poker. That, but I would dissect it like The Last Supper. But right. it, was all, you know, it was all about the, the bulldog is passing the, the ace of clubs to another, like that's Judas and the Doberman pincher is Jesus and, and all this stuff. And then eventually I just, some dog would come, I'd get a dog for it and then I'd just pour water over him and baptize him. But I had all these bits that I kept adding and it just turned into a, com a full comedy routine. I just had no, I've known you for this long and I had no idea you started in street theater because I did street as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's such a obvious when you think about it. It seems like an obvious transition, but if you can make someone on the street laugh or it, like in a in that kind of way that hasn't paid to come and see you, if you can win those people who are not looking for it, no. then that's a real skill, right? You build an audience. You build an audience from scratch. And once you've done that, you're impregnable. You're fearless. So when I finally first went on a real stage, it was like a luxury. It was like I had, I just thought I just got to, I, I, First went on stage in um, Tempe, Arizona. I got, like, the schools are all closed for the winter, for the Christmas break. And I just went into an open mic in Tempe. And um, there was a guy there, and I don't know if you ever met him, a comedian named Bob Duback. Uh, no. He was a magician at the time, and he was he wanted to be a comedian. And we both went on stage. And then we eventually hatched this plan. He was he lived in Aspen. So we hatched, he just said, like, he'd been dumped. He was opening for a... a Almond Brothers side project called Sea Level. And they dumped him. They finished. They'd gone home for Christmas and it's like we had nothing to do. And he just says, let's go to Colorado and just hit the ski towns because every ski town will be heaving. And all we got to do is just find a bar and do comedy. It's like we got the, you know, no instruments, no sound rigs, just cash and carry. And so we started doing indoor shows at all these, um, at all the ski towns. And that was like a crowd that there was rich or there were burnouts and hippies and social mutants of all kinds. But like everybody in this ski in a ski town is just up for a good time. Like you right. really. And I had stupid. I had the stupidest props. It was all props. I was like Gallagher. I was like Gallagher. Well, maybe, hopefully. I shouldn't so very, compare myself to Gallagher. <laughs> but clowny, right? Yeah. So that's I, interesting. So that's like a tiny revolution to you seeing this preacher in yeah. the first instance and going, and you think it was the, the fact that he had a crowd and these people were so kind of, whether they loved it or loathed it, they were paying attention to it. Yeah, they were incredibly engaged. And so there was always this this moment when, when I started out and, as a street performer and you could hear the crowd, oh, not this again, who is it? And then there's just this moment where I go, and God is everywhere, and he's in this album, God's Greatest Hits, or something like that. <laughs> And you could just feel this crowd just explode like, like plankton, like suddenly realizing, ah, oh! I always had him right at that point. So then I could just like, you know, 
I had these milk bones. In fact, I was, I was calling myself Reverend Milkbone, but I had these milk bone treats. And I'd give, I'd say, who wants to break, what dog will break bread with me? And it's like a sacrament. <laughs> and I'd give him his half and then I'd eat the other and the crowd, eat it, eat it. So I'd have to eat them and then just, oh, I must've got a bad one and eat another one. This feels timeless, Rich. I feel like this act would destroy right now. But it's also in a long line of tradition, I think, for American comedy, where people who are preachers become comedians yeah. or comedians become preachers. Like I always think of Kinnison and um, Bill Hicks in that sort yeah. of way, because Kinnison started as a preacher and then became a comic. And Well, certainly Kinnison, but they both came from really evangelistic backgrounds. Get in. Get in. Get in. The stupid dog is barking. Did you just baptize the dog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you went to, did you say it was Knottsville, Texas or Tennessee? Tennessee, Tennessee, yeah. Tennessee. Yeah. So you, you, you uh, were born in Montana, is that right? No, no, I was born oh. in, um, I was born in Virginia, raised in Kentucky and North Carolina. No, I didn't move to Montana until the uh, 90s when I, I couldn't find a place in New York that I wanted. I, I wanted to buy, I had some money, couldn't find a place. I wanted to live in New York and then I moved, I went out to Montana and I just thought, the hell with New York, I want to live out here. It was the middle of nowhere. It was rough because I, I, I wasn't married, I didn't really, I was there by myself and like the winters are really isolated. Here's some of the things I did when I lived on my, this is what like isolation will do. For some reason, I had all these eight by tens of other comedians. Right. I don't know how I had them, but I had a bunch of them. There was a comedian named Rich Scheidner. I had a bunch of picture eight by tens, and I'd I'd go out and I'd nail one to a tree. Then I'd set a <laughs> timer. I'd run inside, grab a twenty two rifle, go up to the top floor of my bedroom, open the window, and shoot him, and then time oh, myself. <laughs> That's one way to take out the competition. <laughs> yeah, I was just like tar- I was. I was doing like the Lee Harvey Oswald thing. That's when I realized, uh, man, I should maybe I should get a house in town. So, uh, yeah, maybe I need to be around some people. Yeah, I need to be around people more. What's your sort of earliest political memory? Was there like a big political upheaval or event in America that you remember? What's your earliest sort of... My earliest inkling that, that, that politics informed people's lives... Not necessarily me, a 13 or 14 year old, but my, like in 1968, I guess I was 13. And um, and my dad would sit in front of the TV and just rail because there was all this stuff going on in Chicago and Detroit and, and um, Kent State and, and you know, the Democratic Convention, which was 68, when they disrupted the Chicago Convention. And my dad was kind of a, Slowly over the years, he changed, but he was pretty hardcore, blue-collar. He was a welder, and uh, he worked with other blue-collar guys, and he would just sit there and yell at the TV, you know, these basically hippies. And um, somehow he equated me with this, because I was listening to <laughs> I was listening to my albums and, and you know, rock and roll and, and stuff and kind of wearing flared, you know, bell-bottom, whatever people you know, flowery shirts, whatever people were wearing then. And he just kind of equated me with a hippie. And I'm like 13. I'm like, Dad, I don't know what you're... I'm not it's not Chicago. a political concept yeah. to me. Yeah. It's just fashion. Yeah. And that was my first, first idea that, that, that you just basically can reach an age where we look at people and generalize, you know. And he was generalizing about his own kid. And I didn't have anything to prove otherwise, you know. I pretty much was dressed the way those people were and kind of listening to the same music. And um, the offshoot of that is that 
I really felt like that was when I really suddenly felt this schism in, in between myself and my dad, you know? Like before then, you know, we were fishing and, and of course we went fishing still, but then everything was kind of, every conversation was kind of infused with these, you kids. And I just right. thought, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to be like that when I get old. I am now, right. but... Um, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, we all gradually become like, they don't know what they're it. doing. <laughs> kids with their <laughs> gadgets. I started watching and kind of reading the news then just to see what was engaging my dad and why he was upset about all this stuff. And he really mellowed over the years, you know. But he was, he was weird that way because he also came home one day and he went, you got to listen to this gal. And he had a record and it was, um, it was Linda Ronstadt album. And he just went nuts for Linda Ronstadt. And this was maybe a year later, you know. And then this is when she was right before she was right before the, you know, big Southern California. She was with a band called the Stone Ponies. But he just listened to that album over and over. And I thought, man, we got the same taste. He loves this stuff. You know, and suddenly he was listening to that and we were listening to the same music. I think that changed a bit when he, he started listening. He'd lean in and listen to what I was hearing. And sometimes he'd go, that doesn't sound bad. And a lot of it, he'd go, that's crap. But then, of course, <laughs> he played a lot of country and Western stuff. And I didn't really much care for country and Western. But then I started listening to that more. And I think Bob Dylan was the point where we never could really meet on. I love Bob Dylan. He hated him. That was my first real sense of of, of the power of, of that that politics was more than just politics, but it was actually a, a, a sentiment, you know, a, a, a thing that divides people or, or unites them. And of course, I was that, that was a really volatile time. So politics, I mean, as, you know, as far as revolutions go, that is probably the most revolutionary time of my life. Even though at the time you don't think that, you just think, oh, this is going on. But you look back on it and it was such a, really think about the 60s, you know, in one decade, between 1960 and 1970, in almost every facet of of life and, and I'm sure in Britain as well as America. Yes, but it was a huge, it was civil civil rights movement in America. Civil rights and the assassinations and a shitload of really funny movies. It seemed like every movie that came out, that might've been a bit later. You know, you just think about music between 1960 and 1970. By 1970, the Beatles were done. Yeah, well, not quite, but in six years, they went through an astounding amount of, of songwriting, an astounding amount of change, and so did music, and so did everything. And you look back on it, and no decade seems to have moved as quickly as the, as the 60s. I wouldn't have known about the 60s. I was playing with tinker toys but by the 70s i was like hey let's rock and roll you know that was just an astounding 10 years and i think if you'd grown up in that you you are aware of a tremendous social movement or you know which translates as a political movement and you can see that those sort of influences, I think, in your in your work, but definitely Bob Dylan, because I've heard you talk about Dylan on stage, and then you obviously play and do songs as well, because your repertoire is, you can turn your hand to, you write beautiful pieces of stand up, but you can work a crowd like no one's business, and you can do a song and and and, and improvise. So I imagine was it Dylan who sort of inf influenced that side of things or were there musical comedians that you watched or I should have uh, picked up an instrument when I was a kid but I just didn't it, I mean I tried and then it was just you know I didn't want to do scales and all that stuff I just wanted to play and it took me a long time 
to um, like my 40s before I even learned to play any instrument at all. I started playing the piano because um, I kind of had this idea that I wanted to do Otis. I hadn't really, I wanted to do something like Otis. He hadn't really been formed yet, but I just thought, I know I can write funny songs because I saw there's a lot of bad musical comedy. Yep. <laughs> in the 80s and the 90s, a lot, especially in America. Not so much here. I think here there's more appreciation for it. But um, yeah, in America, the guy got on stage with a guitar. It was going to be bad. It was just <laughs> going to be bad. And I really thought, you know, you can you can make something of this. Yeah. Do it, you know, you, you can do f- well-written musical comedy. I'd seen it done. I'd go, even when I was a kid and listened to Tom Lehrer and people like that. It was really sharp stuff. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we get to your transition to the UK, I'm sort of interested because Rich's body of work, it's so, you sort of forget I sort of forget how much you've done. But SNL, you were like, and I didn't know that about you, I think maybe until I'd known you for a few years, but you were mm-hmm. a cast member on SNL. For one year, yeah. But it was actually a great year. It was one of the best casts ever, but um, it was uh, temporary. We, we all knew we were only there for a year. So I didn't, I didn't go into Saturday Night Live thinking, oh, I'm going to ride this for what it's worth. I went in for a year thinking, let's try to... Um, do the best we can for a year. Who was in your year? Because I think I saw a photo. Were you and Martin Short? Yeah, Martin Short, Chris Guest, Billy Crystal, Julia Louise Dreyfus. Wow. Pamela Stevenson, Jim Belushi, um, Harry Shearer. That's just an all-legends club. Larry David was a writer, yeah. It was pretty intense. You know, it takes two or three years to figure out how to do that show, and we didn't have that. We had a year to kind of get the sh- to salvage the show because they were about to cancel it. And Lauren Michaels had gone to Canada to make a primetime show. And that didn't work for him, so he was going to come back, but he needed a year. So NBC said, all right, we'll, we'll keep the show on the air if you come back. So he was coming back, but uh, he, he was not our producer that year. It was a guy named Dick Ebersol. So we all knew that we were going to get shit-canned, because when Lauren came back, he'd already said he was going to clean house. So NBC went out and just got... A lot of people knew, I mean, Billy Crystal was already a huge star and um, Spinal Tap had come out. So people, they, they got a really good cast, you know. So I was in this position of like, yeah, who's this guy? And and being thrown in with these f***ing sharks, you know. I mean, friendly sharks. They were all great people. But uh, 
you knew that they their stuff was going to get on first. So I had to go in right away and fight to get my stuff on the air. So did you just pitch? Did you just pitch sketches? To be in them. Well, you learn really quickly that if you, if you want to get in the show, you, you write something with you right. and the host right. in it. Oh, okay. That's the first stuff they look at. Uh, then next, you, you know, try to sit down with Billy Crystal or Chris Guest or somebody and, and write some stuff within, with them. And then you had some some of the cast members who weren't writers, like Julia Louise Dreyfus and, and um, Pamela Stevenson, who were totally reliant on the writing staff. But they would come into our offices and say, come on, let's do something and... It was horrible, but it's like, ah, yeah, okay, I guess, but I've got to look after myself first, you know? Right, everyone's, well, this is kind of like stand-up comedy because everyone's like, oh, you know, stand-up comedians, we should all support each other. And you go, we are also like, you know, like individual people competing yeah. against other individual people too. Yeah, and that, that was an astoundingly competitive atmosphere where, you know, you're trying to get into the show. You tr- right. First of all, you want to get into the show. You don't want to get end up being cut out completely, which I was one show <laughs> with Ringo Starr. <laughs> I love the fact that you've still hung on to that. Well, I wrote all my stuff with Ringo was the host, and I wrote all this great stuff with him, and none of, and he just couldn't he couldn't sell it. Right. So it, it got cut in the dress rehearsal, and uh, I think I I might have done one thing on Weekend Update, but it was just kind of. Ugh. That sucked. I'm not throwing all my eggs in the host basket anymore. But then you also find things that recur, you know. Right, right. Like the weekend update was always a great place just to do one-off stuff. That was really good place. If you just had a character that didn't involve dialogue or or setup, that you could just come on and sit down with um, Chris Guest who read the news and just do something with him. And so I had a lot of characters who just did weekend update, you know. So SNL getting on that was that like a huge huge moment so going back to when you were younger were you watching SNL going this is a thing I'd love to do so like who were the couple of generations before you then on the show was that like um Gilda Radner people like that that was the first generation and we did watch it some but at that point I was if I wasn't working late Saturday night something was wrong you know so you didn't have your eye on SNL as like a goal no 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 not at all no no, I wasn't sure. I was working on another show at the time called Not Necessarily the News when Saturday Night Live came up. So I had to go, I had to do three weeks on SNL and then go back to LA and do a week on Not Necessarily the News. So I never had any time off. It was just constant. It was constantly having a gun to your head and it's astounding how much stuff you can come up with when you have a gun to your head, you know. As opposed to us sitting around going, oh, I should write some jokes today. Eh, f- it. But when you have to, it just will find it. I don't miss that pressure, but I kind of wish I was under that pressure all the time. Yeah, we need we respond to it. I think humans, that kind of routine, and we're in a job where it can all be very loose and a bit lax, and we sort of turn up when we turn up at the club, and yeah. we book in as many dates as we want to do, and yeah. we kind of, we, 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 we sort of kid ourselves that, you know, we're in control of it all, and like, yeah, this is all how I want to do it, but then actually sometimes just having someone breathing down your neck in that fashion... Yeah, and kind of go, having Edinburgh have, having an Edinburgh deadline to write for. I think Edinburgh serves that purpose certainly in this country. So many people gear their whole year toward culminating at Edinburgh, you know, and um, I I never really felt that kind of pressure. Right, Edinburgh. I just I'll show up with what I got, and it'll <laughs> some of it'll come together. But you know, I've never really uh, built an act 
based on, on having an hour. Yeah, I mean, you've been in the UK for a while now. What prompted the kind of decision to just be here? You were here, you were doing Otis, Lee Crenshaw. I think it's maybe my earliest work of yours of seeing the fishing show yeah. uh, with Mike, these documentaries, which I feel like, I guess, yeah, it'd be nice to talk about the documentaries because I feel like there's such a glimpse into America, what being American means. And and possibly for you as well, if the, the kind of stuff that's influenced you and brought all of that to your creativity, you know, like what, what made you decide that this you were going to be in the UK and then just be this American that observes America from a distance? I was sort of in um, club hell in America. Like I was playing a lot of clubs, generally selling them out, doing well, you know, Wednesday through Sunday. But it was the same thing over and over. The, right. the club out at the mall, you know, another airport, another city. Creatively stifling. In a way, yeah. You do 45 minutes, there's an opening act on before you, there's the MC, and then they follow you around to the mall and watch you buy stuff all week. And also, I was, um, I had these books out called Sniglets that were really popular as books, but the club owners, and I kept trying to say, don't do this, but they do it anyway. They go, Rich Hall, creator of Sniglets. And that, of course, would sell tickets, but I never did them on stage. They didn't work on stage. They were, you know, neo, neo, neologisms. They, they worked in books. I couldn't really make them work as stand-up. And, you know, when you push the accelerator button because you think it's going to make it come faster. Like it was just, Seinfeld could get four minutes out of that. But just to say, that's called L acceleration. And, and people <laughs> yeah. go, mm, you know, but they still wanted them. They thought they were going to be hilarious. Well, they're great to read as quips, but yeah. yeah. On, yeah. And you're not really a one-liner guy on stage no, as well. No, but the club owners were like, hey man, why didn't you do the Sniglets? And I just go, oh, for <laughs> sake. Because we promised the people they wanted Sniglets. So that was... Uh, that was always bugging me a lot, you know. I kind of felt like I was being dragged into these clubs and sold under, you know, dubious circumstances. And I was in Montreal and a girl named Marlena Zwickler came up to me. I was sitting in this fake well at the Delta Hotel, uh, Molson's, this Molson's, um, I was drinking Molson's. And I was sitting at the well that was advertising Molson's. So right. job done, you know. <laughs> you were a brand opportunity. <laughs> yeah. She just came right up to me and she'd seen me trying out my gala set at a club called Jimbo's. And, and sure enough, about four minutes in, Sniglets! And I went, oh, for sake. So I just said, I don't do them. And then the crowd would move. So I was trying to run the six minutes I was going to do on the gala. And then I did the gala the next night, and, and it went fine. And she came in and said, well, that was night and day. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then she said, um, have you ever thought coming to Edinburgh. She says, I produce shows at Edinburgh. I produce a guy named Jim Owen and some other people. And I stupidly said, what does that pay? <laughs> and she said, she said, uh, that's not the question. You should be asking yourself, how can I, you know, revive my moribund career? She said, uh, there's a difference between a, a, a groove and a rut. And uh, so uh, I went, oh, fuck it. And I went to Edinburgh. And I got off the train and she's waiting there and she says, so you've got your hour? And I went, huh? Yeah, I can do an hour. I got tons of six minute Letterman sets I'll string together. And she went, no, you don't, you don't get it, do you? And uh, sure enough, I didn't even know what I was up against. You go down to the Royal Mile and you just see, you see what you're up against. 
I, I had no idea that I was that I was there were this thousands of shows, you know. I remember this guy coming up going and said, Oh, hot pants review of a few good men. <laughs> and that's when I knew what? what? Like Bouncy uh, Castle Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wheelie Bin <laughs> ate my sister. There was a two girls girls with big jests. That was <laughs> I just thought I'm just gonna do this for a lark, you know. But like within a, the end of the month, when I was like starting to sell, t- I mean, I did start to sell tickets pretty much right away. They put me in a fireplace up by the student union. I literally performed in a fireplace, a giant <laughs> fireplace like this. But when it was over, it was just like like I never wrote so much as that month. And I saw Dylan Moran, I saw Bill Bailey, I saw this whole different kind of. I mean, watching Bill was just like what. That is musical comedy. Like, just the things right. he did. Like, one second, he's, like, you know, breaking down a classical number, and then he's just got a guitar, and he's just doing Insect Nation, and that just blew me away. And Dylan Moran blew me away, because he was like, is this guy drunk? Or, whoa, no. He's just kind of being drunk, pretending yeah. to be drunk. It was just brilliant. Tipsy and erudite. Yeah, yeah. That might just... <laughs> is he going to drop that thing? And then he would just say something that would just blow me away. A lot of people like that, you know? And I just suddenly saw this whole different approach to comedy that wasn't about the veneer. It was about something underneath it, you know? At the end of it, Marlena just said, you know, you can play you can play theaters. I can get you into theaters here and stuff. And I said, what, what the f*** is this Perrier? <laughs> it's a spray-painted bottle. And then by the end of the run, it was like, they they were coming in to see me, and I was going. Ah, I don't. And she says, "Can you not around the night?" Because I was doing all kinds of shit. Yeah, playing. I was going to Morrison's and buying. I bought about two hundred boxes of cornflakes, and I built like the the Scots monument out of cornflake boxes <laughs> one night. And it didn't really go. <laughs> I built it before the show, and then I thought, "Oh, f- I got to do this every night." Like people just looked at me, like, "What the f- is that thing?" You've built yourself into a corner. Yeah, yeah. Boxes. It was all cornflakes and one Rice Krispies in the middle. <laughs> they were like the little boxes. And the whole idea was that, you like cereal, fella? What kind of cereal? And I figured anybody would look at this tower that I clearly that I constructed and go, oh, if I get the Rice Krispies, the whole thing's going to collapse. It's going to be great. It was all, all cornflakes, one Rice Krispies. Like <laughs> 200 boxes. Went all the way up to the ceiling. And... Uh, the guy says, yeah, yeah, okay, fine, I'll have some cornflakes. What? <laughs> I'm like pointing to the rice. You sure you don't want Rice Krispies? You sure? Because all I have to do is just pull it out and the whole thing would be great. He goes, no, I hate Rice Krispies. I'll take the cornflakes. <laughs> I just went over and went. About 15 minutes in after that, I just went over and kicked the whole thing over. So now I'm, I'm just surrounded by boxes of cereal. And the Perrier people are in and they're just going, the f*** is... Like the whole crowd just went, ooh, why did he, he seems angry. <laughs> so that blew my Perrier that year. It right. was like 96. I had a judge in one night. Like they'd come in on different nights, but there was one night I had a bunch of them in. That was the night that I, um, it was really, really hot. I had a board full of craft single cheeses with ideas written on them. And I just had <laughs> someone throw a dart at them. It was so f***ing hot that the cheese just melted. Like it just turned into... <laughs> Like behind me, like people were just going, what the, like everyone was so unkind. It's like the hottest day of the year. There's nowhere, I, I couldn't have a fan. Marlena said, you should have a fan on stage. I said, no, I'm going to suffer with the crowd. And it was just awful. So the cheese melted. 
it's like 15 minutes in and I'm just getting nothing. Like people were just trying to get, they were just leaning against the wall like this, trying to get moisture by osmosis, by anything, you know, because they were so hot. And uh, I said, are there any Perrier people in tonight? And so that, Marlene was in the back going, oh, for f***'s sake, oh, no, don't do this. And I went, yeah, did you, did you bring any of it with you? Because I'm f***ing dying up here. <laughs> and so it was awful. It was awful, but it was still a great, it was such a, at the end of it, I just thought, this is, you can do an hour of anything, you know? No opening act, no anything, and, and there's no cover charge, there's no nacho platters. Buy a beer, come see a show for an hour take your chances yeah it was like kind of the art of it a bit more yeah and that reduced that that, that took comedy back because i was so used to the three drink minimum opening act waitresses at the clubs putting the check down on the table before you're even done so you lose the crowd when you're when you're headlining these clubs in america about 40 minutes into your 45 minute set they put down the check and you just lose the crowd so then everybody has to have every headliner has to have their big closer you know, right. to get the crowd back. It was just so structured. It wasn't like that in Britain, nor has it ever been, you know. Yeah. And that is to the crowd's credit, you know. Also, the fact that you can have a pub and put on a show. Everything in America is a dedicated comedy club, you know. Right. Yeah, whereas here you're like, and, and Edinburgh is the perfect example of that. Yeah. We're going to put you in a shipping container. Mm-hmm. We're going to put you in the corner of a pleurisy... <laughs> like yeah, a cave that's the walls are sweating. Oh god, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, that thing under the tunnel. One, I was watching somebody one night, and I just reached up to the wall and, and I took a chunk out with my hand. <laughs> it's literally someone bringing down the walls. Yeah, at the club. It was astounding. There's a <laughs> hole in the wall. There's a hole in the wall. One place I looked and I saw a rat eating a donut. And this is in <laughs> like before the show. Like, and you saw. This is the place for yeah. me. <laughs> it's show business. So in terms of your documentaries and when you sort of approach those, was there anyone that you, were, were there any influences for that? Did you watch documentaries? Kind no. Of? What, what made you decide this was the shape or were there any influences there from like writers or? No. Because well, obviously American influences are in there. I know you talk about in the American Dream one, you do mention Frank Lloyd White and, yeah, yeah. and Falling Water and stuff like that. So what was the what was the inspiration behind doing all of this? I was just offered BBC Four just said, do you want to make a documentary? Do you want to do an hour show? <laughs> I I don't I wasn't a big fan of documentaries any more than your average person. But I just thought, well, I can do an authored piece for an hour about something I'm interested in. That's basically what they were saying, you know. That's uh, that BBC four style, just pick a topic and and uh write about it, you know. So um I wrote I my first one was about Westerns, Western movies because I was fascinated by um the fact that so many American presidents, when you, since movies have come out, have been asked what their favorite movie is, and most of them had said a Western. Right. You know, right. Uh, Shane or, um, you know, uh, Magnificent Seven or something like that. And I just thought that there's something there about how presidents perceive themselves as, you know, High Noon. High Noon is a very popular presidential movie. Two or three presidents. Right. Think High Noon is say High Noon is their favorite film. Trump's favorite movie is is uh, 
any one of three Jean-Claude Van Damme films. That's, <laughs> and that's ab- absolutely true. It is. That's his, he, he played him on the plane all the time. And skipped through. Skipped through the boring dialogue parts. To get to the action scenes. That was Trump. Right, right. So there's this good versus evil narrative yeah. that they all yeah. kind of seem to... Did you watch any of those? Were you a big into the Westerns or... Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to do one about Westerns. Right. And um, when it came out, I was in Montana and I didn't even think about it because I guess I was working on other things at the time. It took me, it took about four months to write it, three weeks to shoot it, a couple months to edit, off and on, you know. And uh, and then it came out and it was like, God, all these people watched it and loved it. And so BBC forced it. Well, not everyone can get to the Autry Museum. I know, I know. So, <laughs> I know. And, and and watching Rich all talk about it is much funnier, yeah. um, you know, because the the depth, you the care and attention that goes into it, but obviously, of course, because it's you, it's very funny as well. Yeah, but there's no pressure to do jokes. Like, in fact, jokes you can't jokes just out of the blue didn't work at all. It had to yeah. be germane to to what I was talking about, and I think that that was sort of the what worked because. There aren't many people who, most document, you know, all those BBC Four shows and Sky Art stuff, very dry, and quite often, you know, some of them are interesting, but you don't get many hosts who um, add their own inflection to what you're saying. Yeah. And BBC Four just didn't care. It's like, uh, hey, I think, like I sort of dissed Sergio Leone at the time. I, I was never a big fan of him, and I pretty much said it. And people give me shit for years <laughs> afterwards, like on this. On the tube, just come out because he's apparently really popular in Britain. And I just said, I just thought they were, I didn't think they were Italian movies shot in Spain, you know, bad dialogue. And I mean, looking back on them, they're all right. But to me, they weren't, they weren't real true American Westerns. And I, I understand now that actually he changed the game. Was it John Wayne that went and did a couple of those before Eastwood, he started? Clint Eastwood, yeah. Clint That's Eastwood. how Clint Eastwood made his name. Right, yeah. right. And then yeah. started directing out of those, right. Yeah, so yeah. What was, what's your seminal kind of, for you, like the, you think the best Western? Well, it's actually Clint Eastwood. I think Unforgiven is, my, is probably my favourite Western. And of course, he learned all that from Sergio Leone. So I, you know, <laughs> I do apologise somewhat, but I just still stand by the, the original badly dubbed Italian westerns were still, to me, kind of like, eh. right. you know, they're not capturing the essence of the, because the, the West in America, it's such a creation story, you know, that it belongs to America. And to see, so, I think it bugged me back then. To see Europeans ago, coming yeah. in. <laughs> it bugged me that someone else would take what, what we do and kind of, eh, look at this, it's anybody, anybody can make these shitty westerns. And I think that the essence of the Western is pretty much the essence of the American dream, you know. Right. It is the American dream in a nutshell. And with it, all of the idealism and problems that come with it, right? Yeah. And it's allowed us to um, to make an apologia for, for Native Americans, you know, and all that stuff. And, and uh, the great thing about America is that they can take this... The worst things that we've done, slavery and, and, you know, treatment of Native Americans and, you know, subjugation of the poor, is that America has this ability to romanticize it, turn it into the blues, you know. Yeah, I know we had slavery, but we got John Lee Hooker, you know. Yeah, 
like the blues came out of, you know, basically field hollers and slave songs. And that's, you know, ultimately at the beginning, as did country music. But we, you can turn around in America and go, well, yeah, we f***ed up, but we have sort of this cultural sort of souvenir to show for it, you know? One of the other documentaries you did, you did one about sort of first generation or Native Americans. Yeah, yeah. That was called Inventing the Indian. Yeah. Right. Again, that was mostly about, I think the first three or four documentaries were about, were cinema based. And that one was about the, the portrayal of Native Americans in, in uh, American cinema. And it was really, it was really great to do because I, I found this guy basically on the, on YouTube named Dallas Goldtooth, who was in a Native American improvisational comedy group. And I just got in touch with him and said, because I knew kind of that if I'm going to talk about Native Americans, I've got to have a sounding board, else I'm just going to listen. And blah, 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 says the white yeah. guy. So I got Dallas and he was f***ing hilarious. It's such a great, I mean, if, if there's anyone listening that hasn't watched that, you should yeah. take some time. I learned a lot about it. That's what I love about your documentaries, actually. I feel like they're nourishing. They're like food and lessons without being feel, feeling like you're being taught a lesson. Because yeah. I think that's one of the things in comedy at the moment. You know, we're all trying to, we're aiming to be on the right side of history that, that and as we should be. However, there is a tendency to, think that we are in a position to tell people off yeah or tell people what to think rather than kind of go this is how I think and this is how I got there and this is what I question and these are my ideas and above all being funny that being the first sort of thing you know I think we're moving into a bit of a time where people are feeling a bit more responsibility for the sort of stuff they talk about but I that's what I love about your documentaries is that you do you give all this nourishment with it and there's there's so much to learn but it's never done in a way that's preachy or impenetrable no that's probably because i don't know much about what i'm talking about before i start writing it so it takes a lot of research and as that research goes along i start to find out these things and um in the back of my head i'm always aware that i'm saying this to a british audience because every British crowd, oh yeah, Westerns, yeah, John Wayne and stuff. So I know that they're marginally aware of what I'm talking about. So it's just a matter of like elucidating that, you know. But I don't, I don't really know that much about anything until I, I start researching it. And then, um, then I find out where I'm going to go. So after they're done, I pretty much forget it all, <laughs> you know. Right. People, people will come to me and go, hey, you know when you said so-and-so? And I go, oh, I did? No, no, I don't remember. <laughs> no, it's gone. I've wiped yeah. it clean. I'm on to the next yeah. thing. It's a thesis. It's a thesis with, with jokes in it. And and then we find other people to interview to back up or maybe, you know, shine a different light on on what we're talking about. But for the most part, it's very authored. So that's why I, you, know, you can't really call it a documentary in the sense that let's turn on the camera and see what happens. Like, I know what I'm going to say. Right, it's all right. written. You know, yes. it might change during the filming and things will be added to it. But like, I don't go in without a prepared script. What tiny revolutions have you found in your way of approaching work? Cause some people have said like meditation or. No, no, I run, I, I ran all my, my whole life and now I bike. So I have to do that first thing in the morning. So that's my only ritual. Right. That kind of like 
sets you up for I the day. I can't really, yeah, I can't. I have to do it as early in the day as possible and get it out of the way. And mentally, psychologically, I'm like ready to go after that. Like I couldn't, I, there's not been a day in my, that I can remember that I haven't exercised of some one way or another, you know, that just seems, I don't know if it makes a difference or not. I completely agree. I think yeah. there's a thing of like, there's a thing that happens when you do something that's automatic and some, it fires up the creative yeah. part of your brain as well. Certainly running, running did that for me. Does, it doesn't work for everyone, but it definitely, I came up with ideas running that yeah. I never come up with if I just sat down and went, ah, think of something, you know, you, I'm one of those people who don't, when I'm exercising, riding a bike or running, I don't think about, oh God, I gotta, I gotta quit doing it, you know, it just becomes, I can concentrate on something else. So that's very fortunate. And I think that really just gets something going physiologically that prepares me for the day. But that's really it, you know. Tomorrow I will have to get up in the morning and start writing a radio show for Wednesday. Nick Duty and I have to write this show. So that's, you know, not a very high caliber gun, but it is still a gun to my head. It's still so a gun. I know I'll come up with stuff. I haven't even right. thought about it right now. Tomorrow morning yeah. I'll get up and think about it. So in a way, you know, if you have to... It's that old, you know, turning on the tap and seeing, you know, trying to get something to come out of it. Yeah. Uh, but there's other times when, oh, f you know, I should just sit down and write some new stuff. Sometimes, you know, even with old rope, it was like, oh, I could better come up with some new stuff. So it's a Monday deadline. Oh, tonight, yeah. Tonight, I'm going to be trying this out on stage. Whereas, I, you know, if I didn't have to do it, I probably wouldn't. And that's lockdown's been interesting for people in that sort of regard because I think create creatively it's been quite difficult because I I've said a couple of times but you know the not knowing what the world's going to look like after this makes it hard to write with yeah, that in mind. It does. I think we're in a period where nostalgia is pretty much the only thing that that's certain right now. Right. Nobody. I don't think when I go back to being on stage. I hope I don't end up talking about what I did during lockdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't care how extraordinary you think you are. It's boring. And I don't think the audience wants to hear that either. Films and shows were being commissioned around that. And I'm like, once this is done, no one's going to want to see yeah. or hear about it. Good God, yeah. no. It's like trying to write a show about 9-11. Like, really? You're going to get yeah. humor out of it? It's pretty, it's a pretty f***ed up thing. And the future just seems so kind of like... Oh. So, consequently, you know, um, you can't just go out and pick up where you left off and pretend like you haven't just spent a year being locked up, but nor can you really kind of dwell on what the f*** you did during lockdown, because it wasn't that... Interesting. You might get two or three good stories. Yeah, if you've got something... I think the few things that have sort of come to me that I would go, they would stick... Yeah. It are insights about who I am as a person. Yeah. And being with the person I love for that consistent, solid. Yeah. What it does, you know, maybe the dynamic of what happens once they're the only other person that oh, you God, can yeah. see, you know. So sort of stuff like that. But I, but, um, but I think lots of comedians will then be able to talk about that as well. So for me, if, if any of that's going to stick, it has to be so good that you're like, oh, okay. Like it, 
I'm happy. I would have been happy to write this bit anytime. Yeah. Not just during, not just during lockdown. Yeah. And the same goes with politics. Like, I'm not going to go out and talk about Trump anymore. I'm as glad he's gone as anyone. And, and there's no point on dwelling on it. It's like we moved on. But there is nothing in this new administration as of yet where you go, oh, you know, Biden's too, too new to make fun of. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's not to say there aren't things to talk about. There's a huge rift in America between Republicans and Democrats. But I almost kind of feel like I don't want to go out and pick on Republicans right now. It's like they just they just ate shit. That's yeah. good enough, you know. What what am I going to go out and rub it in, you know? So I don't really know. I think that's why I'm thankful for music. They may very well just come out with a guitar and hey, where are you from, fella? What do you do? <laughs> right, right. Because it just uh, right now that seems like the safest. That's that's I can get something out of that, you know. And and fun, just falling yeah, back on stuff yeah. that's jet like genuine. There's so much serious stuff and horrible stuff that's been happening. I think we will have a return to. I think this is an art generally. It'll be comedy. It'll be TV, films, music, yeah. to some kind of fun and optimism. Yeah. Stuff that's not so. And you're going to have the the goodwill silly. of the audience. I think there's going to be a, a short period, three or four months, of people coming back out, just going, "Hey, this is what it's like." Well, you can pretty much come up there and doesn't matter what you say. You're just yeah. Going, yeah. Hey, I'm looking forward to that, you know. Thank you, Rachel, for coming on Tidy Revolutions. You've been fascinating. I, I've got to know more about you. I thought I knew you pretty well, but I'm very, very pleased that we had this chat. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. You can listen to other programmes from The Bugle, including The Bugle, The Last Post, Tiny Revolutions and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts. 